The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Now as we get the opportunity to look to Scripture, we're looking at Matthew chapter 1 and 2 today as we're looking at the Christmas message and what I call the sermon today is the King is Born. And I just want to go through and look at some highlights of chapters 1 and 2 of Christ's birth. So if you wanted to follow along in the, the bulletin, you can. There's a outline provided. We're just going to be looking at highlights, like I said, in Matthew chapter 1 and then halfway through chapter 2. The King is Born. It was an interesting week. I was being very conscientious as I went to different stores, whether it was the gas station or shopping at the mall. And that happened uh, going to the store, whether it was Safeway or Lucky, everywhere I went. And the person behind the counter, just about every one of them said something as I was leaving, whether it was Happy Holidays. And so this year it was uh, about 60% Happy Holidays and about 40% Merry Christmas, which is actually an improvement over last year because there were fewer Merry Christmases last year. And so as I tried to respond to their verbal blessing to me, Happy Holidays, and then I would say Happy Holidays, and then I'd say, and Merry Christmas too. And then a large percent of the time to the Happy Holiday people that work in the stores, when I said Merry Christmas, they would quickly say, oh, and Merry Christmas to you too. They, were, they just wanted to say that. Or they're being held back by their employer. Uh, but I guess if I initiate it, it's okay for them to say it. So, so that was kind of interesting. So it is Christmas week, and... Boy, a large percentage of America celebrates Christmas. And again, this whole month we've been wanting to emphasize what is the biblical meaning of Christmas because so many people say Merry Christmas or have Christmas lights or open presents and celebrate the holidays or the Christmas, or actually the holiday spirit. But few have a direct interpretation and a historical divine explanation of what Christmas is really about. It just gets lost in the the shuffle and tradition and culture and everything else. The real meaning is clouded out. So we want to accentuate the true meaning of Christmas according to the Bible and what it's all about. We've been doing that all month. It's been a blessing to do that. And so today we get to really hone in on the birth of the King, the Lord Jesus, as it was given by God Himself. An accurate account, a historical account, a real account. Every event that we're going to talk about and read in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 actually happened. It is reality. It is not mythology. It's not fiction. Even some of the startling things that you see happen and you scratch your head and say, wow, how did that happen? The answer is, wow, I don't know. God does miracles. And that is how it happened. So we can take the Bible at face value. Uh, so that's just a, a great blessing to just be reminded of the simple meaning of Christmas. Christmas. By the way, we are still here. The world did not end on December 21st. And also from Scripture, we know how the world is going to end. So we can live without fear. The end is delineated for us very clearly in Scripture and God's plan. And we are secure in Him. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Set you free from fears and deception, distraction, and all those other things. So let's go ahead and look at uh, how the King was born and the significance of it and its application to our life today 2,000 years later. In these four points that I want to highlight for us, about this blessed person, Jesus Christ, who He was, who He truly is. He is the Christ. We talked about that actually the last two weeks, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That's what Christ means, Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, significant people were anointed to be set apart for the ministry of God or dedicated to God. It means dedication. Anointed literally with oil. And typically that was a king. A sovereign one, the one with the right to rule, the one with the right to judge, the one, hopefully, who had God's wisdom. That is typically who was anointed. And so that's what that word means. Messiah, that's a Hebrew word. It carries over into the New Testament, the Greek word. Christ. And Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's what I thought for 19 years growing up. Jesus Christ. No. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Anointed. Jesus the King. Jesus in the words of Revelation. Jesus the King of Kings. Not just of the earth, of the universe. That's what that means. So we're looking at the Christ and His 
birth today as it happened 2,000 years ago. And let's look at point number one. What about this Christ? Well, Jesus the Christ is a sympathetic Savior, verses 1 through 17 in Matthew. Let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 17. I'm not going to read through all of that. But all you need to note is in verse 1 is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And then there's that very frightening one, two, three, fifth word in that sentence, genealogy. A lot of us do our Bible reading and there's genealogies all over in the Bible. A lot of times we just want to skip over those. This long list of names of obscure, meaningless people that have nothing to do with us and provide no relevant information or practicality to our life. So we just typically skip through the genealogies when we're reading through the Bible and we shouldn't do that. Everything in the Bible matters, is absolutely significant, and believe it or not, has relevant practical implications and application for us. And so does this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And I want to point out some of the significant things in there if you just read it. So, but if you just read through, you got like 30 names in there. And you'll note, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse 2, it starts Jesus' genealogy with Abraham. So in other words, Abraham is the first person in the genealogy. And Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. And then it traces uh, in chunks or in an abbreviated shorthand fashion significant people from the time of Abraham down to Jesus the Messiah. And the, two, the three most significant people in this genealogy in verses 1 through 17, uh, the first significant person is Abraham. He was the first Jew. God pulled him away from his pagan life and made him the first Jew and told him, uh, I will make you a great nation. That nation became Israel. So Abraham is significant because he's the first Jew. The second major and significant person in this genealogy is David. David was the greatest king of Israel who lived a thousand years before Jesus. And so Matthew is showing us that Jesus came through literally the line of Abraham, the first Jew, so Jesus was a Jew, and he came through the line of David, so Jesus is in the kingly line. And then the third most significant name in this genealogy culminates in verse 17 with Jesus himself. That's the point. He is the climax and the apex of this genealogy, showing us, defining for us who Jesus is. He's more than just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a rabbi. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a philanthropist and a great moral guy who influenced people and unfortunately got killed by mistake. That is not who Jesus is. Jesus came from Abraham. He came from the kingly line of David. But also in this genealogy, I want to point out that Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. Jesus came into this world. Well, Jesus existed before the world was created. That's the amazing thing. He lived in heaven without a body with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for all eternity, in eternity past. Think on that for a while. Then the triune God of the universe created this world. It fell into sin. Not a surprise to Jesus. And then Jesus came down, took on a human body to the earth that He created to fulfill His plan. And His plan was to seek and save sinners. And to restore them. And to have a relationship with them in this life and all eternity. That was Christ's plan as the Creator and the Savior. And so at the very heart of God's eternal plan is that Jesus would be a Savior. He would rescue and save sinners. And you see His saving grace in actually literally every verse of this genealogy, verses 1 through 17. Because this genealogy culminates with the birth of Jesus Christ who entered into this world as the Savior to seek and to save those who were lost, those who would listen to His message, those that would have a teachable and soft heart and would bow the knee to Him when they heard His wonderful Gospel. Jesus is the sympathetic Savior. Well, why do I say that? Well, Literally, this is Jesus' genealogy. This is Jesus' legal genealogy and also His physical bloodline genealogy as a human being. Jesus was literally blood-related to Abraham, the first Jew. Jesus was literally blood-related to King David, the first king. Jesus had the right, by virtue of His blood relationship to David, to reign as king. And also, this is a legal genealogy, which was very important to the Jews to establish certain legal matters in all areas of their life. And that is what Matthew is doing. Not only is Jesus born from the right bloodline to reign as king and be the Messiah, He is born in the right legal line to reign as king and sit on the throne. And so, this is really 
a genealogy rep- representing Joseph's side of the family. And then in Luke, we have Mary's side of the family. And Joseph legally adopted Jesus. And with that adoption, Jesus legally became the rightful son of Joseph who had a legal claim to the throne of David as a Jew. And what is amazing in this genealogy, and you see the forgiving heart of God and the compassionate heart of God, is you've got Jesus who was born as the God-man, Jesus who was born sinless, Jesus who lived His entire life sinless as the God-man. Jesus is Lord. He is perfect. He is holy. Jesus never sinned. Jesus reigns on high. Jesus is eternal God. And yet, Jesus coming down into this world as the God-man literally came through these people. And every single one of these people in this genealogy have one thing in common. They are all fallen, corrupt, pathetic sinners. And they were born that way. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus was born through the legacy of a bunch of sinful people. That was His lineage, literally. And He came from them. And the point is, He identifies with sinners. And that's why He is sympathetic. He has a sympathetic heart towards sinners. That's who Jesus is. That's one of the main truths about Jesus. He loves sinners. He wants to rescue sinners. He wants to save sinners. And every single one of these people listed here is or was a sinner. And a big time sinner as well. So I just want to highlight some of the uh, truths uh, from different points of view accentuating Jesus' sympathy towards sinners and humans in general. First thing I want to highlight here is Jesus' sympathy towards women. Just If you were to read the genealogies in the Old Testament and just stack them all up and read through them, rarely will you ever find a woman named in a genealogy in the Old Testament. That's not because God doesn't like women. There are very practical reasons of typically why women were not named. Practical reasons, whether it was military reasons, political reasons, uh, Levitical priestly reasons, social reasons. So there was always a very practical reason of why there was a genealogy. You didn't trace your genealogy. And it was always through, typically, the man. He was the head of the home. He was the head of the tribe. He was the head of the clan. That's just the way God ordained it. It has nothing to do with women being inferior, inferior to men because God doesn't believe that. Men and women are equal. But this is a unique genealogy because in this genealogy, not only is one woman woman listed in the genealogy of Jesus, five women. Now, can you imagine the typical Jew of the day, whether it's a Pharisee or a Sadducee, reading this genealogy and reading that there are five women in there, they would think this genealogy is poisoned, this is illegitimate, this is ridiculous. Jewish genealogies don't have women listed in them, especially these women. So let's look at some of these women that Jesus identifies with by virtue of the fact that He comes through their line, through their loins, through their blood. first one. It starts with Abraham. He was the first Jew. That's where it begins. 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, Abraham, God made a covenant with him and said, I will make a great nation come from you. And someone will come from you who will bless the world and even the Gentiles. And that will be the Messiah Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Or literally, Abraham begat Isaac. Literally, Isaac came from Abraham and his wife by a physical, intimate Sexual union that Abraham and his wife had. And then the wife gave birth to Isaac. The word begat. Very important in this text because over 20 times it says beget, 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 beget in the King James, which is the right and correct and precise translations in your King James Bible. Uh, My New American Standard says was the father of. That doesn't do justice to what it says. Begat, begat, begat. The reason that is important we're going to see is that when it gets down to Jesus, Jesus was the only one in this genealogy that was not begat from a human man. It doesn't use that word because he had a unique birth. But anyway, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was uh, the father of Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father, get this, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So there's your first woman listed. He just has to throw that in there. By the way, here's the genealogy of Jesus, and Tamar is in the genealogy. And then if you're a Jew, you know your Old Testament, man, the first thing I think of is Genesis 38. I think of Tamar. Oh, yikes. She was a deceiver. She was a liar. She uh, feigned to be a single woman and a harlot and a prostitute. And then she tricked her father-in-law. And then she uh, committed the sin of sexual immorality, adultery, prostitution, all that were worthy of death by stoning in the Mosaic Law. This woman? Wow. The who's who of who's terrible. That's where she belongs, and yet she's in the genealogy of Jesus Himself. 
That's where Jesus came from. He came from these kind of people. Why? Well, that just tells us Jesus can sympathize with these kind of people. Tamar, an adulteress. Then it goes on. Well, who else did Jesus come from? What other kind of women? It goes down to verse 5, going through this genealogy. And then there was Salmon was the father of Boaz, who you will find in the book of Ruth. And Boaz was married to Rahab. Whoa! And you can read about Rahab in the book of Joshua. And we learn the story of Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile. Rahab was associated with idol worshipers. Rahab originally didn't know the true God, Yahweh. Rahab was a harlot and a prostitute by profession and lifestyle. According to the Mosaic Law, Rahab should have been stoned to death for her profession and given no mercy and grace whatsoever because she was totally unholy in terms of her lifestyle and the way she conducted herself. Rahab. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, she's still called... And by the way, Rahab came to faith in the true God. She came to learn who Yahweh was. She was humbled. She was broken. Uh, she had a relationship with the true God. And God forgave her of her sin. And yet in the New Testament, even though she came to know God personally, was forgiven of all her sin, she's still noted as Rahab the harlot. So here you've got two prostitutes right off the bat, right out of the gate in the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, why would you do this? Why would you identify with these horrible, despicable, pathetic sinners? Well, that's because that's what we are, aren't we? That's my biography. It's the same. It just manifests itself in different ways. But Rahab came to know the true God. Then the genealogy goes on in verse 5. Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. There's a, a short book in the Old Testament called Ruth. So there's your third woman, Ruth. What was she like? Well, she was a Moabitess. What is that? Well, that's a Gentile, non-Jewish religion or race. And as a matter of fact, the Moabites were cursed by God in the Old Testament. They were despicable people. They worshipped false gods. They did horrific things. They blasphemed God. And God says that is a cursed people. The Mo Do not affiliate and associate with the Moabites. They are evil. They are wicked. They will take you down. That's what God said. But in His grace... In His grace, He made an exception and He forgave this woman named Ruth who heard the truth about Yahweh, was convicted by the Holy Spirit, and again, a repentant, broken heart towards the true God, Yahweh. And this woman became a beautiful woman who loved and knew the true God, Ruth. And God extended grace to this horrible sinner. And she becomes really one of the ideal godly women in the entire Bible. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. These are three horrible sinners. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. It gets worse. Uh, look at verse 6. Uh, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon. David was a Jew. David was ordained by God to be king, second king of Israel, but the greatest king of Israel. David loved God. David was not perfect. David was a sinner. David compromised. David was weak. David knew it. David had ongoing forgiveness of his sin from God. We read the Psalms and his testimony of times when he struggled with his own sin, when he compromised and sinned against God. God forgave him of his sin, but not without consequences. Many practical consequences in David's life that were horrible and made his life miserable on a very practical level. Because he was reaping what he had sown in sinful decisions. We do the same thing. Yet at the same time, from a legal point of view, God continued to extend grace and forgiveness to David because the Scripture says that David knew Yahweh, he knew God personally, and he had a heart for God. And God loved David. And he wrote many of our psalms that we can peek into the heart of David. And he was a man of worship. It was exemplary. And at the same time, he was a sinner and he had compromise in his life. One area where he compromised grossly, according to the Bible, when you get married, you're only supposed to marry one person what the Scripture says. If you have a relationship with more than one person, that is called adultery. That is immorality. That required the death penalty. And David got involved in immorality. He, had, he married at least nine women. That is sinful. That was polygamy. That was condemned by God explicitly, especially for kings in the book of Deuteronomy. And yet God forgave David. He should have been stoned nine times over. See, that is the grace of God. Mercy. A saving God. 
And David knew God personally. And, and David was convicted by these sins. And so in verse 6, you've got another compromise. Uh, so David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. So Jesus came through the genealogy, the lineage, the loins of Bathsheba. Okay, there's your fourth woman. Bathsheba, who was she? Well, she was married to this guy named Uriah. Who was Uriah? Uriah was, for all we know, he was a good man. He was a Jewish man. He was a leader in the Israelite army. He was faithful. He was a hard worker. He was brave. He was courageous. He put his life on the line. He obeyed the law. Everything about his, his character is impeccable in the Old Testament that we see. He was committed to his wife. He was married to Bathsheba. And then we know the story from the Old Testament where uh, when people were out to war and fighting and David is king, maybe he should have been out there at war and fighting. He's at home lounging around and idle and then that's when he sees Bathsheba and he's looking where he's not supposed to look and he is uh, tempted by her. He falls into lust. He follows through on his lust and he basically... Uh, gets Bathsheba and he commits uh, immorality with her. He commits adultery with her, sinning against God, sinning against Uriah who was serving in David's army, protecting David and his country. Talk about a compromise. Not only that, David tries to... Oh, Bathsheba gets pregnant and David's got to hide it somehow. So he ends up basically killing Uriah. Having Uriah get killed, which is, amounts to murder. David, the man who knew God, the man who loved God, the man who was forgiven by God, committed murder. There was blood on his hands. Because Bathsheba got pregnant. Do we know from Scripture that David was... He did not fess up on this sin for almost an entire year. He, tried, he was running away from the sin. But you know what? Uh, he couldn't run away from God because guilt was overweighing weighing down on him, pressing down on him. And then when you start reading the Psalms, Psalms uh, starting at verse 30 on up to Psalm 51 are the testimonies of David where he is just you just see his guilt. He is so riddled and downtrodden with guilt because he knows what he did was so wrong before God. He can't sleep. He's losing weight. He's going insane. He is depressed. This is all because of unconfessed sin. And then finally in Psalm 51, you see him confess the sin before God and he is, he is freed. He's forgiven by God. He's strengthened. He is renewed. Yet, and that went on for an entire year, and yet there are horrible consequences, temporal consequences, that resulted from his sin. And as far as we know from there, and then he took Bathsheba to be uh, the husband to Bathsheba. He took care of Bathsheba. God was even gracious in that relationship because it began in an immoral fashion. David was already married. Bathsheba was already married, and yet David compromised. And then Uriah gets killed, and so David takes Bathsheba into his home, and he takes care of Bathsheba. Uh, the baby of that illegitimate union died after only a week after it was born. That is a natural consequence of God's punishment. By the way, that baby went to heaven immediately. And then God blessed Bathsheba with another child. The child was Solomon, who became one of the greatest kings in Israel, the son of David. So even there, with a, a, a gross sin, you see the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, doesn't it? Isn't that good news for the Christian? If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, you can't out-sin the grace of God. Here's My stack of sin is this high. Well, God's stack of grace is this high, and it smothers and drowns away all of your sin. Man, that's a good reason to celebrate Christmas, isn't it? That's how great our Savior is. He's an, he's an infinite Savior, providing infinite grace and infinite forgiveness and infinite patience and infinite mercy towards sinners and those who would just collapse on His grace in repentance. He's a sympathetic Savior. So just we see this by virtue of the women in this genealogy, these compromising sinful women who actually, most all of them, became true believers, rescued and restored by God. And then finally in verse 16, of the genealogy is Mary. Mary, typically women don't belong in the genealogy and there's Mary. Mary does stand out and apart from all these other women, she was a Jewish woman. She was a young woman. She was pure. She was righteous. She, was, she loved God. She was virtuous. She was holy. She adored God. She adored Yahweh. She adored the law of God. Fastidiously obeying it. Submitting to it. Submitting to the voice of God. You can read this particularly in the Gospel of Luke. By the way, Mary was not sinless. Mary sinned. 
I didn't know that until I was 19 years old. My whole life, for almost 19 years, I believed that Mary never sinned. She was sinless. That's what I had been taught. Then I read the Bible and was like, no, she was just like one of us. She walked with feet of clay. She was finite. She was fallen. She was born sinful. She needed a Savior, according to the Gospel of Luke. And she embraced a Savior in the God-man who was born out of her womb. An amazing miracle. And Mary came to know Jesus as her Savior personally. The God-man. So she does stand out in this genealogy as a righteous woman from the beginning without all that compromise, which is actually best suited for the one to bring the Savior into the world. Isn't it? Seems only appropriate. But here, we just see the sympathy of Jesus. Yeah, I, I don't despise women. I love women. I created women. Women were made in God's image. Jesus wants to save women and indeed... That's one of the reasons He came. Uh, another example of the sympathetic Savior in this genealogy is the, the, uh, the Gentiles that are in this genealogy. Here, Jesus was a Jew. He was the consummate Jew. He was the perfect Jew. The Messiah had to be a Jew. He had to be a full-blooded Jew. And yet, every once in a while, you're going through all these Jewish men and, oh, there's a Gentile, there's a Gentile, there's a Gentile. You know, from a Pharisee, the word Pharisee means pure. Pharisees were the religious leaders and scholars of the Old Testament in Jesus' day, and they were they thought very highly of themselves. They were hypocrites. They thought they knew more about the Bible and spirituality than everybody else. And they had the audacity to call themselves Pharisees. The pure ones. We are the pristine ones. We are not mutts. We are purebred. They despised the Samaritans who were half-breeds. The Samaritans had the cooties. We don't even want to touch them. The Gentiles were worse. We don't even want to step foot near where a Gentile has been or touch anything that was made unclean by a Gentile. So that's the Pharisees, the purists. And yet, in the genealogy of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah who came in fulfillment of the Pharisees' Scriptures, I can just imagine a Pharisee getting his hands on this in 50 A.D. when Matthew wrote this and published it and some unbelieving, arrogant, pristine-thinking Pharisee who hated Jesus and uh, lended to the cause of killing Jesus, reads this genealogy and sees this genealogy and first sees these pathetic women in there. And then he starts reading it and seeing all these pathetic Gentiles in there who have poisoned this genealogy in the Pharisees' mind. Certainly Jesus could not be the Messiah because He's not pure. Because He's got dirty, filthy, Gentile blood in His genealogy. Tamar, one example. Rahab, we talked about her as well. And there's a few others that slip in there too. Well, the reason, but the Pharisee's a total hypocrite because his genealogy wasn't perfect either. It wasn't pristine, if he were to be honest. Because everybody goes back to Adam and Eve, and guess what? Adam and Eve, they weren't Jewish. And neither was Noah. And all of us go back to Noah's family and Adam and Eve. So nobody has a pure genealogy, regardless of what they think. So here's Jesus relating to these Gentiles. So you see, Gentiles, we. Uh, weaving their way through this genealogy, which is really in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's why Abraham is mentioned in verse 1 of this genealogy. Jesus is the coming promised Messiah of a promise that God made to Abraham in 2000 B.C. when He told Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation from you and out of your loins is going to come one who will be Savior not for just the Jews, but for the entire world, including all the Gentiles. And to prove it, the down payment is all these Gentiles that weave their way in the very genealogy of this blessed Messiah. He's a universal Savior, meaning He's a Savior for everyone regardless of your race, your ethnic origin, where you came from, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew. Isn't that good news? He's a Savior for everyone. And that's why the half-breed, dirty, soiled Samaritan in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, when she came to realize who Jesus Christ really was, that He was the God-man, the only Savior, the one who could forgive sin, she declared, I believe after she got saved, indeed, is this not the Savior of the world? The universal Savior. Jesus is sympathetic. He is sympathetic to sinners and all kinds of sinners. He's sympathetic to women. He's sympathetic to Gentiles. Who else is He sympathetic to? Just... Uh, I would say he was sympathetic just to sinners in general. And I already pointed out that every person in here is a sinner. And if our name was in there, it would be the same about us. And not only are there some sinners in here, there are some horrible sinners. There are some professional sinners in this genealogy. If you read your Old Testament, you'd be surprised. Solomon, uh, immoral, sexually immoral, adulterer, at times a liar, uh, at the end of his life got involved in idol worship. Yet he was a believer. Can you imagine? 
He got involved in idol worship, which deserved the death penalty, which he didn't get. So again, God being gracious to him. So there's Solomon in verse 7. Horrible compromiser of a believer. Then there was David, same thing. Polygamy, adultery, murder, blood on his hands, and yet he knew God and God forgave him of all those sins because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Abraham, another one, for 75 years, pagan, idol worshiper, uh, worshipped probably many other gods, didn't know true God until he was probably around uh, 75, 80 years old. Polygamist, adulterer, liar, I could go on and on. And yet he came to know God and God forgave him of all of his sins in his lifetime. And he lives in heaven now. In just absolute bliss with the triune God of the universe. Forgiven of all of his sins. And when Abraham got to heaven, uh, all of his sins were not thrown in his face by God and the angels. He walks into heaven and some angel hands him a piece of paper, a very long scroll. By the way, Abraham, there's all the sins you committed in your life. No. I personally believe that when Abraham got into heaven at the moment of his last breath on earth, he never had to hear about any of his sins that he committed on earth. His sins were forgiven by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that hadn't even happened yet. The blood of Jesus washed away all of his sins. And when Abraham got into heaven, he was forgiven of all of his sins. There was absolutely no guilt. There was still absolutely no guilt. And all he had was just sweet fellowship with the triune God and all the saints of all the ages and all the blessed, pure, sinless angels. And all of his sins had been cast as far as the east is from the west. Never to hear about his sins ever again. That's what it means that Jesus is Savior. He saves us from our sins and even the guilt of our sins. That's what heaven is. Doesn't that sound like a beautiful thing? So Jesus, the sympathetic Savior. Let's go on to point number two. Starting uh, at verse 18. We read that a little earlier. And the Christ is not only a sympathetic Savior, the Christ is a miraculous Savior. And there are amazing miracles and things that happen in this birth account. Just want to point out a couple. By the way, the Savior had to be a miraculous being. And not just miraculous, He had to be a supernatural being. Because to forgive the sin of a human takes a supernatural act. Only God really can forgive sin. So the Messiah had to be miraculous. He had to be supernatural. No, He had to be divine. The Savior to save, <coughs> excuse me, indeed had to be divine. He had to be God in the flesh because only God can forgive sin. That's all there is to it. Only God can forgive an individual's sins and only God can forgive all the sins of every sinner in the world that would repent and believe in Him. Does, does God still do miracles today? I mean, we read through the Bible sometimes, wow, look at that miracle. Walking on water and parting the sea and uh, turning all these uh, five loaves into bread that feeds 25,000 people. And I, I don't see these miracles happening today. How come these miracles aren't happening today? And I say, man, the greatest miracle that was ever done and performed is still happening today. That is that a sinner would be forgiven by a holy God. There is no greater miracle than that. A sinner condemned, deserving, and headed to hell, saved by Almighty, merciful God and the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiving all their sins. Not because they deserved it, earned it, or worked for it. It was just strictly the grace of God and His sovereign choice to do so. Reaching out to that sinner, saving that sinner, forgiving them of all of their sin, and then giving them a destiny, literally, that they can count on in hope and with confidence of a future with God forever. That is the greatest miracle in the Bible. And God is still doing that. Day after day after day after day all over the world. He's still working miracles. And this is this Christ. The Christ is a miraculous Savior. Let's look at the miraculous nature of Jesus Christ all over in surrounding His birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, so they were engaged. In in, uh, Jesus' day, that was a legal arrangement. In order to break uh, off an engagement or a betrothal, you had to go through a legal divorce. So they are engaged. They hadn't come together yet. They weren't living together yet. They had no physical intimacy whatsoever up to this point. Mary was still a virgin up to this point. Before they came together, that means before they were officially married and the marriage was consummated physically with intimacy 
where Mary would no longer be a virgin as they lived together as husband and wife. Before that happened, she was found to be with child. She was pregnant. That is a miracle. This is called the virgin birth. No human man was involved. This is important for Matthew to give the details of because up to the time of Jesus' death, uh, there was a controversy about who His human father was. And the Jews who hated Jesus, especially the scribes, Sadducees and Pharisees would mock Jesus and they would basically call him the bastard boy. So you don't even have a human father. You don't even know who your daddy is. And if you do know, uh, your mom and dad weren't even married. That's what they say in John chapter 8. They are vicious. And they say it publicly to try to humiliate and dismiss and really besmirch his whole reputation. And that's why Matthew says, no, here's what happened. Mary was not unfaithful. She was not illegitimate. Jesus is not illegitimate. How dare you say that about the Holy One of God, the unique One of God, the blessed Savior with the miraculous birth who was born of Mary without a human father. And what happened was the Holy Spirit of God created that baby in Mary's womb and Jesus came down from heaven and went into Mary's womb supernaturally. By a miracle through the power of the Holy Spirit is how it happened. That's the testimony of Luke 1.35 and also right here. She was found to be pregnant. She was found to be with child, it says, by the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? I don't know. It was a miracle. God does miracles. Jesus is miraculous. Jesus came into this world in a miraculous, supernatural, unrepeatable way. And He left this world in the same fashion. In a miraculous, supernatural, unrepeatable manner that would prove and attest that He indeed is the God-man, Savior of the world. The Bible is clear about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It speaks to the direct nature of who He was. It speaks directly to His character that He was deity and God in a body. To reject the, the virgin birth, to categorically reject the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is really to reject the deity of Christ which is to reject the Jesus of the Bible. And that's why it's stated so clearly in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and he was and this fulfills scripture that predicted it in Isaiah chapter 7. And that would identify him to the Jews, this indeed is your unique Messiah. He's the miraculous one, the supernatural one, the one the one that came down from heaven unlike any other. It's absolutely amazing. This is mind-boggling. Verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, so Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. And he doesn't know how that happened. He thinks Mary cheated on him. But he loves Mary. So Joseph knows he's got a couple of options. Uh, let's see, I could take this to court and humiliate her publicly and bring a case and have her stoned to death, according to the Mosaic Law. Or option number two, I can do this secretly and write her a, a certificate of divorce and send her away secretly and quietly so she doesn't get shamed and humiliated. And that was a provision that God made in the book of Deuteronomy because of the hardness of hearts and because He knew that He was dealing with sinners. So again, the grace of God overriding our sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more with the blessed Savior, doesn't it? And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Being a righteous man means Joseph, he knew God. He loved God. He was a sinner who loved God. And he was a merciful, compassionate person. He didn't want to just mete out the law, death, in anger towards Mary. No, he's showing compassion and grace. He's showing the heart of God. That's what that means. Being a righteous man, showing the heart of God, the grace of God, just like his sympathetic Savior. I think Joseph was very familiar with all of his predecessors in his Old Testament Scriptures of these Wonderful, amazing patriarchal leaders who had horrifically compromised sinful lives who were forgiven graciously by their Savior. And I think Joseph wants to mimic that. So he's gracious as a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her or humiliate her or make a scene and shame her for life or end her life. He planned to literally divorce her legally according to the Mosaic Law secretly. Verse 20, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Five times in the birth account of the Lord Jesus Christ, God appears to Joseph or Mary in a dream. Usually through an angel. Five times in a dream. Again, this is accentuating the unique birth of Jesus Christ. This is announcing that God has come down from heaven and is about to plant His feet on earth. So this speaks to the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. No human man. This is a baby unlike any other. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you will call his name literally Jehovah or Yahshua. God is Savior. Name your child. God is Savior. What a message. She's going to bear a son and you should call his name Jesus for He shall save His people from their sins. Why did Jesus come into the world? To save His people from their sins. That's what I'm celebrating today at Christmas. That Jesus has forgiven me of all of my sins. And I am His. It says His people. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus? You belong to Jesus. He owns you. You are His. Verse 22, now all this, and again, the miraculous nature of this. This is fulfilling prophecy. Very specifically, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah 750 years before. Behold, the virgin, she will be with with child. She will be pregnant and she will bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And God literally walked among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what sets Jesus apart from every other religious figure in the history of the world. Not just a religious man. God in a body. The almighty, infinite, eternal creator, judge, God of the universe in a body. That's Jesus. Isn't that amazing? How he accommodates himself to sinful, sinful humanity and be in their presence. In the Old Testament, God resided in a temple that really nobody was allowed to go and see, literally directly. And here, God in His grace comes down in the temple of a human body. And that was Jesus. Verse 24, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He obeyed God, took Mary as his wife. So he finished out the engagement. Verse 25, He kept her a virgin. They remained pure until she gave birth to a son, Jesus. Then they consummated their marriage. Joseph and Mary went on to have several children, half-siblings of Jesus. And Joseph was obedient and he called his name Jesus. God saves. The Christ is a sympathetic Savior. The Christ is a miraculous Savior. And number three, the Christ is a despised Savior. He was despised just before his death. He was despised at the time of his death. He was despised during the time of his ministry for three and a half years. He's been despised for 2,000 years. Jesus Christ is despised today. There are people who hate Jesus. I didn't make that up. John chapter 7, Jesus told His disciples, the world, they hate me. And He uses that word. They hate me. The world hates me. And if you love me, they will hate you too. You can't really water that down and make it kind of candy-coated and warm fuzzies. And That's just stark reality that we need to know. And here's an example of Jesus being despised. Not everybody embraced Him as the blessed, wonderful Savior like Mary and Joseph did. This is reality. There are different kinds of people in the world and there always will be, right? Those who find Jesus interesting. Oh, that's intriguing. Those who love Jesus when they hear about Him and they embrace Him as the Savior. And then those who hear and despise Him and reject Him and want nothing to do with Him and keep Him at arm's distance because He is an intrusion in their life and makes them feel guilty and threatens their lifestyle. And so that's what you got going on here with King Herod. He wasn't really a king. He thought he was. And he flaunted that title. So let's look at this where the Messiah was despised prior to His birth and even at the time of His birth. Now after Jesus, starting at chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So Herod was half Jewish and he had the privilege and the authority to rule on behalf of Rome over the jurisdiction of a part of Palestine which included Bethlehem and Jerusalem and the temple area. So he's the big shot. Kind of a local mayor. Days of Herod the king. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So at the time of Jesus' birth, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, We think these Magi came from the area of Persia which would be modern day Iran. (coughs) So we're looking at 500 plus miles of traveling that these magi had to do over very rough terrain, rugged, dangerous, by the way, in that day and age. And it took a long time. And they probably had to pack a lot of camels and a lot of horses and donkeys and whatever, huge caravan, 
And we would suspect a crowd of dozens and dozens and dozens of people that came with this entourage hundreds of miles away from Persia. And so these magi, by the way, there weren't three kings. So the magi, they weren't kings and there weren't three of them. That was tradition that came up with that. Uh, and the reason they said three kings is because there were three different kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But there were way more than three and they probably weren't kings. They were probably king makers, actually. So the magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. It was a big deal because if you've got an entourage that the feast or at this time of the year uh, in the town of Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and you've got hundreds of visitors who came from out of town and they look very different and they're making all kinds of noise and they need places to stay, this was quite noticeable. They didn't come in obscurity. They were really disrupting the town. What in the world? Looking out in the streets. Who are those people? What's going on? That's really what was going on. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is... Saying, by the way, this was an ongoing thing. They were saying it was continual and ongoing. They were going in and out all over the town, asking people, inquiring. In other words, they wouldn't relent until they got an answer. Almost to the point of being obnoxious. The participle there at the end of verse 1. Verse 2, where is He who has been born King of the Jews? So, for some reason, the Magi suspected that a new king in Jerusalem or of the Israelites had been born, and they're calling him the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. Now, Herod thought he was the king of the Jews. Herod was evil. He was wicked. He was half Jewish. He was half Idumean, which means he probably came from the loins of Esau. Esau hated the Jewish people, and so did pretty much Herod, even though he was half Jewish. He was a compromiser. He was a megalomaniac. He was fearful. He was jealous. He killed everybody that was a threat in his life, including his own family members. He was one of the most bloodthirsty thugs and murderers that really human history has known. That's King Herod. And he's not even a king. And he reigned for decades over Jerusalem. And he hears these people coming into town who have a lot of money, very wealthy, the upper class, the elite of a country where they are kingmakers bringing all this, uh, these gifts and material to bring and homage to a king. And so immediately when Herod catches wind of this, and especially when he sees it, he is fearful, he is jealous. No, he's thinking one thing. I've got to put a stop to this. There is a threat to my throne. That's got to stop. That is the mindset of Herod in all this. And they're shouting out, where is the king of the Jews? And that's the most frightening thing that Herod could possibly hear. I am the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? I am the king of the Jews. I am the only king of the Jews. There is no other king of the Jews. By the way, when Jesus was crucified, they wrote something on a sign and hung it and nailed it to above His cross, above His head. And it said, Jesus, King of the Jews. King of the Jews. They did it in mockery and actually they were fulfilling prophecy. They did it in mockery and actually they were giving an accurate description of who Jesus was. God's plan wouldn't be way late. He was the King of the Jews. He is the King of the Jews. Whereas He who has been born King of the Jews, said the Magi, for we saw His star in the east and have come to worship Him. And literally, they came to worship. They knew that this king was different. They knew probably, this is in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, these magi in Persia, over there near Babylon, apparently had access to Old Testament Scriptures that made prophecies of a coming king from Israel, from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem, they would find out, because of their interactions probably with Daniel and other prophets who brought the Word of God to that part of the world 500 years before. And some of these magi, their profession was looking at the stars, studying the stars. Astronomers, if you will. They were experts in the signs of the sky. And they saw one that was unique, that was different. They'd never been seen before and they call it His star. It was unique. It wasn't a normal star. It was probably the Shekinah of God, a supernatural temporary light that God created to manifest the fulfillment of prophecy that was predicted in the book of Genesis and other places, that a star would announce the coming of the Messiah into the world. And the stargazers, the professional astronomers over in Persia realized this reality and found it in Scripture and came to the Jews, the experts on the Scriptures, to reveal this truth to them. They missed it. The Jews did. The Pharisees missed it. These Gentiles, these pagans probably, saw it clearly. And appropriately so, we came for we saw 
his star. Not only did they see the star and they were following the star, it says they did the appropriate thing. We have come to worship Him. We have come to bow the knee to Him. To bow the knee and worship anything or anybody other than God is blasphemy. But to bow the knee and worship Jesus is appropriate because He is God. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was jealous. He was fearful. He probably went ballistic. He went hysterical. He went bananas. I don't know how any other way to say it. And all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests. By the way, he ended up you know, executing and killing a whole bunch of baby boys all throughout the city of uh, Jerusalem. Two years and younger with uh, swords. Putting them all to death. Trying to kill and stamp out this competing king. In a jealous rage, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It's interesting. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Well, why was the rest of Jerusalem troubled? Well, when Herod, the vicious, wicked king, gets troubled, as a citizen, you're troubled because you don't know how he's going to respond or act. Your life could be on the line, and that's exactly what happened. All these mothers in Jerusalem were troubled. They were worried. They lost the lives of their innocent babies. So, Herod catches one of this, and then gathering together all the chief priests, those are the Sadducees who rule over the temple. And the scribes, those were Pharisees, masters of the Old Testament law. He gathered them together. Holy huddle. He inquired of them, searching the Old Testament Scriptures, asking, where must the Messiah be? Where is the Messiah to be born? Here he's supposed to be the King of the Jews and know the Scripture back and forward. He didn't even know this prophecy in Micah 5.2. And so they searched the Scripture and they determined, yes. Uh, verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. That's where the Messiah will be born. That was the rightful place for a king to be born. That's where King David was born. And the king who will be Messiah will also be born in that town. And that is exactly where Jesus was born. Fulfilling Scripture, the right to be king. In Bethlehem of Judea, uh, for this is what it was written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, and by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler, that's a king, who will shepherd my people. He will pastor. He will be a pastor as well. Not just a ruler and king. He will be a pastor. A shepherd's heart. Caring for people. Loving people. Serving people. A beautiful balance. So Herod heard the Scriptures. He didn't submit to Scripture. He didn't obey Scripture. He didn't want to do homage to the new king that was required or deserved. Verse 7, instead, in his sin and in his pride, says that Herod secretly called the Magi, secretly calls these Magi together and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So Herod's trying to figure out, okay, when did that star appear? How old is this kid? How old is this kid? Because I want to wipe him out. So that's why he determined to have two-year-olds on down slaughtered throughout the entire city. That's what he did. In verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem and then he sends them off. Herod the liar, go and search carefully for the child and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Herod was lying. He didn't want to worship Jesus. He wanted him dead. Herod despised Jesus and people the world over do the same today. Our blessed Savior. Let's go on to number four. Not only is Jesus Christ a sympathetic Savior, the miraculous Savior and a despised Savior, He's a worthy Savior. He is a worthy Savior. He is worthy first and foremost to be worshipped. Like the Magi who came and said, we have come to worship Him. We have come to be prostrate in front of Him. To lay our face down in front of Him. To, to bow the knee to Him. He's a worthy Savior. As the God-man. As the blessed Savior. As the ruler. As the king. Verse 9, And after hearing uh, Herod the king, the Magi, they went their way. So they're headed off to Bethlehem. And the star... I think the Shekinah of God, or literally the light is what it says. The light which they had seen in the east went on before them. So they're literally following this light. Kind of like the children of Israel followed God in a light of fire for 40 years. They're following this God-made light which they had seen in the east. It went on before them until it came and stood. See, this light literally stood over the place where the child was. So that's why we know it was not a normal star up in heaven. I was reading one commentary and it said, this was probably either Jupiter or whatever. No, I don't think Jupiter was standing over a house. It would have been incinerated a long time ago, along with planet Earth. This is the light of God prophesied in the Old Testament and stood literally over where the child was. So if you have a nativity scene at home with a star on top of the nativity scene, keep it there. It's biblically accurate. Uh, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Oh, there it is. There's that light. There's that star. We're here. Could it be? Verse 11, and after coming into the house... 
So he was born in a stable, even though the Bible doesn't say stable. It says they laid him in a manger, which is a place where you feed animals. And the likelihood is, is there was probably this huge, massive rock that was hollowed out that they did use as a stable for animals. And that's where Jesus was born and stayed for a while while he was a baby. And then at some point, Joseph and Mary moved into some house. And that's probably where he is here. Some time has gone by, but he's still very small. And the light stood over the house no longer in the manger. And he went from baby to child in verse 11. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Notice, not Joseph, his father. Joseph was not his father biologically. But the child was with his Mary, Mary, his mother. And they fell to the ground and they worshipped him just as they said. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And by the way, the end of verse 11, the fact that they would present to Jesus, Messiah, and King... Gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are gifts suited for a king and only a king. And this even, this even fulfills Scripture. Isaiah 49. Uh, Psalm 72. Speaks of kings and princes falling down before Messiah. Worshipping, giving homage, and also presenting gifts like this. Frankincense. Gold. All over the place. Scripture is being fulfilled, highlighting and accentuating this miraculous birth of the God-man who came as Savior of the world to seek out and to save sinners from their sin. They fell down and they worshipped Him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to Him these gifts on the first Christmas. In verse 12, "...and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, uh, the Magi left back to Persia hundreds of miles away to their own country, probably changed and new men." Probably now knowing the true God of the Bible in an intimate way, in a way that they never had before. And that's what Christmas can do. Christmas can change lives when you come to realize who Jesus Christ truly is. On that last point, Christ is a worthy Savior. He's worthy for worship. And so I just want to leave with you, well, how can we as Christians worship Jesus today? He's not here physically and bodily the way He was when the Magi, where they could literally you know, prostrate down in front of Him and and worship Him. How can we worship Jesus whom we can't see? How can we worship Jesus who's not here physically? Well, we can. If you go to your Bible, we'll close with Hebrews chapter, or, uh, Romans chapter 12. And just some practical thoughts about how you, how I, can worship Jesus today even though He physically resides in heaven and spiritually and visibly is in our midst and in our heart. Here's how Scripture tells us until we see Him again literally and physically we're to conduct our worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and following. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, those of you that are Christians, those of you that are not Christians, you can become Christians, by the way. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you shall be saved. Do what the man said in the Gospel of Luke in repentance, pounding your chest. God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and God will forgive you when you pray that prayer. He'll forgive all of your sin. He'll adopt you into His family. You'll be eternally secure in Him. You'll have the greatest Christmas you've ever had in your life. But for the rest of us who know Jesus Christ personally, this is how we can worship Jesus starting today and all throughout the week and on Christmas Day. Therefore, I urge in every day of your life, I urge you, brethren, fellow believers, by the mercies of God, because God has been merciful to you and saved you, as a result, present your body, there it is, your physical body and everything about you, everywhere you go, no matter what you do, all the time, 24-7. Your entire life is a sacrifice to be used to please God in all that you do. Present your body. This is a command. This is how we worship Jesus today. Present your body as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God that means in everything you do, ask. Just stop and pause. Lord Jesus, am I pleasing to You in what I'm doing right now? Does this give You satisfaction? Does this further Your kingdom? That's hard to do as a sinner, isn't it? And if there's a compromise, we need to stop. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Holy Spirit, help me turn away from sin. No matter what you do with your body, present it to God continually in an ongoing manner in a way that is acceptable. God, which is Your holy, which is Your spiritual service and worship. There it is. This is your spiritual service of worship to God. Don't be conformed to this fallen, sinful world, but be transformed, here's the key, by the renewing of your mind. How you think, the decisions you make, the priorities you have, the priorities that I have, in order that you may prove what the will of God is, that is which is good, acceptable, pleasing, and perfect 
to the God we claim to know and who is worthy of our worship. May that be the heart and the priority of all of us who know Him this Christmas season. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together. Thank You for the reminder in Your Word of the true account of Christmas, its historicity, and its ongoing meaning for us today. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for being a gracious and merciful Savior. Thank You for coming down into the world that You created to be a servant to sinners. Thank You for every single one in our group here that You have saved. God, continue to work on the hearts of those we, we know who, who haven't come to You yet. Soften their hearts. Prompt. Be gracious. Teach. Woo. And draw them to Yourself. And we entrust them to You. We pray all of this for Your glory. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.